0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you, although we do have a focus on nutrition as the topic that uh, I found to be an interesting one. So For me personally, when it comes to nutrition strategies that work, I suspect there is a wide range of options for people to choose from that can be successful. Because of this, I believe that finding an option that is relatively easy to stick to is going to yield the most consistency and therefore success at the individual level. This is likely why we see people have great success on such a wide range of different ways of eating. For me personally, this has been a low-carbohydrate diet, which is one reason I'm interested in it. My approach works well for me and many others, but it isn't something I would consider universal, especially when you look at specific lifestyle factors that are going to be unique to me and other people that it works for. For this reason, I like to think of nutrition planning through two main assumptions. One is that all foods are tools, and these tools are going to have strengths and weaknesses. They will also have trade-offs. What this means is if you want to zoom in on one aspect, you can make a specific food look either entirely good or bad. This, in my opinion, becomes problematic when discussing nutrition because it just clouds the reality of what one can expect. Second, when it comes to recommendations, I find it unlikely any singular way of eating will be successful at a population level given our current food environment. Meaning, if we decide to promote a best diet for all or place any way of eating in a guideline structure intended to convince everyone to eat a specific way, it will fail. I don't believe the food pyramid was unique in this way. I believe if you replace it with any other singular approach within that same guideline structure that it was placed, that approach will also fail. This is why I believe we need a wide range of approaches for people to choose from so that they can identify the way of eating they can personally sustain. I don't have a great solution to progress this, but I do believe that when people begin to form cults around alternative dietary approaches, we just end up unnecessarily demonizing certain foods, overly promoting others, and viewing things too black and white or good versus bad this just generates false hope and what I suspect are going to be higher failure rates within that approach. So generally when someone finds success with a specific way of eating, I assume they got that success by finding an approach they can consistently stick to due to some form of preferences and or structure that they find impactful. Where things begin to go wrong is when people start projecting the approach that worked for them onto others in a way that seems absolute when in reality, it may not work for the other person due to some combination of preferences and lifestyle factors. So for this interview episode, I brought on Dr. Andrea Love to dive into some nutrition topics I have found both interesting and problematic when it comes to nutrition dialogue and advocacy. Dr. Andrea Love is an immunologist and co-host of Unbiased Science Podcast. She is also the director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation For this episode, she joined the show to talk about how alternative dietary approaches often reach a point where they become ideological and cult-like versus simply being an alternative approach. An outline of some of the things that we discussed throughout this episode include nutrition measurement tools, how do they differ from other areas of science in their need for precision, food frequency questionnaires, are they valuable, garbage, or something else, seed oils, are they healthy or unhealthy, mechanisms and other study designs the minnesota coronary experiment and its relation to seed oils natural versus unnatural foods heating seed oils ultra processed foods leaky gut and food sensitivities and microbiome tests all right before we bring dr andrea love onto the show just a couple reminders i do want to make sure you're all aware of the raffle that i've been running continuously on this show The way that it works is you can win a free consultation with me. It's a 30-minute consultation, and the way you get entered into it is simply sharing an episode you like on social media and tagging me. If you tag me, I'll know that you did it. Therefore, I can save and answer you into the raffle, and what happens is at the end of the month, I draw one of those names that are listed under the people who shared an episode, and... I'll reach out to you and send you that sign up for a free 30 minute consultation with me. So if you're interested in that and want to help me grow the show, share it on social media, tag me. If it's a situation where you're sharing it somewhere and I'm not taggable for one reason or the other, just screenshot it if you can and email it to me at hpopodcast at gmail.com. And I can enter you that way as well. If you want to support the show in other means, you can also join the show's Patreon page, which does have intro ad-free episodes. You just get straight to the interview, whether it's a guest or a topic, and it's also early release. You can find the link to the Patreon page on the podcast website, which is zackbitter.com forward slash HPO. There's also other donation options on there if you're interested, and the whole catalog. So if you want to take a look at what other episodes and topics I've covered over the months, weeks, years, however long you want to look at it, this podcast has been out now for... I think this is the fifth year technically starting 2018 so there's a long catalog on there if you want to peruse through it that is the spot to go that's zackbetter.com forward slash hpo so last thing before we get rolling is just a shout out to this year's show sponsors they are element electrolytes and delta g I'm not going to go through a long explanation of either of those, but I'm going to put at the end of this episode, a thorough explanation of how I use these products. So if you are interested in them, you want to hear how I go about using them in my, in my daily life in my training, then that'll be there at the end of the episode for you. So just so you know, element electrolytes is my choice of prime is my choice of electrolytes. They come in a wide range of options, including citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango, chili, raw and flavored. Got a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. If you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash hpo, you can get a free sample pack of all those flavors with your first purchase. So you can find out which ones you like, don't like, and if you do want to use them in your training, racing, lifestyle, you'll have an idea of which ones work best for you. Delta G is the original ketone ester out of Oxford University through the work of Professor Kieran Clark, who has been a critical part of exogenous ketone research and formulation. They are the ones that received the DARPA grant, in effort to design a formula for special forces. Since then, Delta G has produced over 50 published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing ones. You can check out their research and the product at deltagketones.com. There, you can also sign up for a free consultation and find out how they would maybe work with your lifestyle. Again, if you want to hear how I've been using Delta-G and Element Electrolytes, you can find the thorough description at the end of the podcast. All right, let's welcome Dr. Andrea Love to the show. Andrea, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Zach. I'm super excited to, to chat with, with you about all sorts of biology.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of them out there. It's, I think uh, nut- nutrition and dietary stuff is maybe one of the easiest things to Dunning-Kruger because you have this situation where there's so much information out there. It's almost impossible to, I mean, that's probably everything nowadays with the internet, but to some degree you can spend an afternoon exploring something that is piques your interest and feel like you kind of got a grasp of it. But unless you continue to look Deeper and deeper and deeper, you find yourself uh, in a in an interesting situation. A lot of times, on what you think you know and what there's actually available about it.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, you know, that's the wild west of the internet, right? You know, people can publish pretty much anything unchecked there. And and a lot of claims might sound really credible and really legit. And if you aren't trained to kind of tease apart scientific data, you know, you might fall prey to it. it. And it's and it's intentional, right? It's done to mislead people and be very insidious. And I think with diet, nutrition and a lot of these lifestyle things, it's it's um, a really easy mark because it's something that people feel like they have some control over, right? There are certain things in our world that we're exposed to that we just have to react to or exist with. But when it comes to like your personal health or your personal well-being, there are things that people can change and see if it improves how they feel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the other interesting, maybe this is kind of a fun kickoff topic too, is just the measurement tools relative to nutrition science versus other areas of science. I find this one to be very interesting because you have science as a whole where, you know, like if we're building a rocket, the precision required to launch that rocket and have it actually work is very, very precise to the degree you can't have any wiggle room or the thing blows up. Whereas with nutrition, you could never get that level of precision just because of all the, the confounders and things that kind of wouldn't in, uh, input. So you you have to use these these less precise tools. But when you actually look at kind of how that plays out with a lot of these things, you just don't need super precise tools the way you would to launch a rocket to get at least a good enough idea of where certain things are heading and begin to kind of make recommendations or at least have some idea of like, on average, this is probably going to happen if you do that. Or if you do these things, your risk factors increase and you can start to kind of collect that data and kind of get an idea of like where you're, where you're sort of putting yourself. But I think that kind of gets weaponized to a degree because people will take this idea of precision like rocket science <laughs> and try to apply it to nutrition where that's just going to be a dead end. You could always argue this isn't good enough if you're basing it on that sort of a a uh, precise tool.
1: Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's, a, it's a great point. It really underscores, you know, biological research in general, but something as diverse as nutritional science when every single subject uh, – Every human is genetically distinct and have all sorts of different factors. Their environment, their microbiome, which is a whole other topic that I am happy to chat about all the time. Um, but there's so many different um, layers of complexity within an individual human, and the methods that we would use to assess. Um, you know, efficacy or benefit of a nutritional intervention often rely on self-reported feedback. That it's really hard to tease out even something as, um, you know, as well accepted as the placebo effect. Right? If someone truly believes that something is going to improve how they feel or their quality of life or their energy level. You know, that sometimes comes to fruition. And that's why it's really important to have as many randomized controlled trials as possible, even in a research area that um, is harder to parse out um, compared to something like looking at vaccine efficacy. Really, it's a very discrete endpoint mm-hmm. um, compared to something a, a little bit, you know, more nuanced. Like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. No, it makes sense. And I I think one point within this I wanna kind of talk about with that is food frequency questionnaires because this is one where it definitely gets it's one of those things where like if I ask one person what's the value of a food frequency questionnaire, I could get them to lay out a scenario in which they're trying to pull data out of this person of what they ate ten years ago, and then my intuition is gonna be like, well, that's garbage. Like no one's gonna remember that versus when you actually look at kind of how food frequency questionnaires are generally used, this would be an example I would say of like, it's an it can be an imprecise, relatively speaking, imprecise measurement tool, but depending on what you're trying to actually measure with it, it can be relatively accurate. So yeah, food frequency questionnaires probably aren't going to help us figure out what someone ate 10 years ago, but most research isn't using them for that sort of thing so can you just tell us a little bit like how are food frequency questionnaires typically used and what is their value in kind of kicking things off when we're trying to learn about how a specific way of eating or specific food will actually impact someone's health
1: yeah that's a great question and and you know Maybe maybe I'll note that in the end. But but you're absolutely you know, something you just noted is how those questions are phrased really impacts how they are responded to. And um and verbiage and grammar is actually really important in some of those um and those modalities because it can subliminally message or unconsciously message to individuals. But typically a food frequency questionnaire is looking at, you know, the. Um, the portion sizes, the types of food, the beverages that are being consumed. And and usually it's dictated over a specific period of time. Um, again, you're absolutely right. It's not going to be something in the distant past. You're looking typically within... The last month, the last year, um, and a lot of this is to basically have them detail a finite list um, based on certain questions that are that are indicated, and this is going to um, look at kind of total diet composition, total diet proportions, um, portion sizes, as well as kind of how those relate to um, certain uh, risk factors for certain disease states, certain, um, you know, predominance to a certain disease condition or body condition or things like that. Um, it's also going to look at, you know, are there linkages or correlations between um multiple participants, certain foods, certain risk factors, and things like that. Now, the challenges, of course, is the way you phrase it, who's participating, and also People have inherent recall bias as well as biases when they're trying to report things like portion control. So unless someone is physically supervising and that would kind of shift that from, you know, a questionnaire based study to a controlled trial sort of study, you know, people broadly underestimate the quantity of food that they're eating. So if they think they've consumed one portion of, say, we'll go ice cream because I eat (laughs) ice cream, say ice cream, you know, in reality, I'm eating three or four portions. Right. So so a lot of times it also allows researchers to understand why there might be disparity in outcomes versus inputs because again people are saying well i used one serving of salad dressing why am why am i seeing you know i'm not seeing weight loss loss." you know for simplicity's sake and in reality it's because they're not actually in a calorie deficit because they it's all these secret kind of calorie sources that they didn't fully understand. Um, you know, there's, of course, a lot of limitations to these, right? Because if someone says, you know, I ate chicken. Well, was it prepared? Was it fried? Did you have oil in it? What else did you add to it? Was there extra sodium? And so there's all these other things that um, can skew the data or even can change the data from person to person or even within the same person from day to day. Right. You know, sometimes maybe that was grilled white meat chicken. Another day it might be, you know, on the bone, dark meat chicken with skin, you know. And so unless you have a questionnaire formed in such a precise way that you can really dissect out all of those, there's always going to be a confounding variable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times it doesn't stop there either, too. It's sort of like points you towards what is worth spending more time exploring. And, and that's where I think those are probably, probably useful. I just find it interesting that it, it, they tend to be like many of these things, I think, weaponized either as a, in a black and white manner, where it's something where it's like, oh, well, this research study used a food frequency questionnaire, therefore we throw it out before even looking at anything else involved with it. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, that's true with a lot of biomedical sciences is that, you know, I think there's just a lack of understanding that it's shades of gray. There's nuance. It's not black and white. You know, when you consume something on social media as information, you know, especially if you're just reading the headline, that's very you know, it's very likely that that's not the full story or the scope of what's being discussed. And so it's really important for people to kind of, you know, look under the hood a little bit and maybe take things with a grain of salt.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The one topic that I want to get into with you is seed oils. And this one has been, an I've just gotten increasingly interested in seed oils in general over the last few months. And part of it is because I sort of was uninterested in seed oils to some degree where it was just like it was just kind of this thing and then it started becoming more popular for all the wrong reasons like it became a a target of this is how I'm going to establish some credibility perhaps or momentum online because if I say something like unnatural or this used to be engine lubricant whatever it is. hit. You know, there's so many right. seed oils, it just goes on and on and on. And it's just so easy to kind of position it as really, really bad. Before that though, you know, I follow a relatively low carbohydrate diet. So like seed oils, in my opinion, were just something where this is a tool that could potentially be useful because it's literally hundred percent fat. So if I'm looking to increase my, my fat intake, and minimize my carbohydrate intake to some degree, like that's a tool I may be interested in, especially if I, like you mentioned before, if I'm having a salad and I did a 20 mile run that morning, I might want a bunch of that salad dress. Need some calories. Right, so like, but then obviously like you start hearing about seed oils being bad and then say, what do I replace it with? Or do I need to replace it? Maybe they're better than the alternative that I'm going to replace it with. And you sort of end up in this situation where it's really hard to know what you're doing is good or bad even when you're looking at it through just like a macronutrient side of things like I had been
1: yeah no absolutely and and you know if you went on social media and you watch some of these influencers and tiktokers and things like that like Everything is apparently toxic. Every single thing that you're eating, right? Um, and so, you know, the seed oil demonization I think really kind of gained traction with this carnivore diet phenomenon as well. They kind of like evolved and emerged simultaneously. And so, you know, you've got Liver King saying, "Well, animal fat is the only fat you should be eating," and you know, carnivore MD, who um, his his real name is Paul Saladino. I hope it's okay to call him out, but he's a psychiatrist. So he has no like he has an MD and he uses that as an appeal to authority but he's trained in psychiatry, it's not remotely anything biologically related that that he could be speaking on this. But anyways, he's a huge proponent of only eating animal products and of course they demonize seed oils. So so there's kind of like several buckets, right? The two overarching themes are, you know, Seed oils are toxic and they're killing you. And, and and because they're refined, they're also simultaneously killing you. So, you know, if you look online, you're going to see social media influencers, your holistic health people and your integrative this and your wellness gurus. And they're going to say seed oils are causing inflammation. They're causing headaches. They're causing brain fog. They're causing type two diabetes. They're causing weight gain. They're causing heart problems. They're causing cancer. They're causing leaky gut. And they're causing all these medical issues. And, you know, there's even hashtags, right? The hateful eight, which relates to the eight most common seed oils. You've got seed oil free and um, and so those hateful eight are referring to um, canola oil, corn oil, sunflower, safflower, soy, grapeseed, rice bran, and cottonseed oil. Um, and these are uh, all toxic. They're all killing everybody, apparently. So, so maybe very quickly, so seed oils are a catch-all name for vegetable oils that are derived from seeds. So basically, instead of olive oil, which is technically a vegetable oil that's made from fruit, because the olive is is the fruit of the olive plant, not the pit of the olive, whereas something like a sunflower oil is actually taking the seed of the oil, crushing it and extracting the oil. So, um, you know, all of those seed oils apparently are all terrible for people. Um, The TLDR of all this is that there's no no evidence to support those claims. Um, you know, of course, we've we've gone through the era of the the saturated versus the unsaturated fats. So all vegetable fats um, are liquid at room temperature. Um, so those are all your oils, your animal fats like butter and lard are solid at room temperature, and it relates to the different types of fatty acid chains that are present in those. Um So I think that the biggest claim that relates to the seed oils is this 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 nebulous term of inflammation, which as an immunologist is quite frustrating because inflammation is very tightly regulated and it's essential and it's balanced by anti inflammation inflammation by our body. And typically we can't really like flex it or, or loosen it or, you know, anyway. So so oils, all oils have different ratios of fat. Right, And so we talk a lot about um, A certain type of polyunsaturated fats Omega-6 fatty acids Um, These are essential They're required for optimal human health But humans can't make them Um, So we typically have to consume them Otherwise we don't have omega-6s Now um, omega-6s are very important for brain function For metabolism, for growth and development Um, And these are... um, they also help with skin and hair growth, uh, bone density, and they also participate in the reproductive system. So, you know, there's they're something that, That we need. Um, So so seed oils broadly have a higher ratio of omega-6s to other fatty acids like omega-3s. And there's one omega-6 that is um, found in seed oils that has gotten a lot of negative attention, and that's linoleic acid. So people people say uh, essentially when you consume linoleic acid in the context of seed oils, Essentially, it undergoes a metabolic process and it's converted to another fatty acid called arachidonic acid. And um, according to these people who vilify seed oils, they say that this this conversion of linoleic acid to arachidonic acid um, causes heart disease and causes chronic inflammation. They use some animal testing and um, or animal studies to kind of prove their point. And I think it's really important for people to understand that animals, non-human animals are not the same as humans and you cannot extrapolate in vivo data to a person. That's why clinical studies are always really, really important. Um, but the biggest part is that um, only a tiny, tiny proportion of linoleic acid is actually converted to arachidonic acid. It's like 0.2%. So, you know, that whole pathway, like it happens, but it's not happening to the degree that these people are suggesting. Um, And, you know, basically within that pathway, you have linoleic acid, which is then... um, It's initially converted before it goes to arachidonic acid to a secondary metabolite called gamma linoleic acid or GLA. And in contrast to people that suggest that it causes all this chronic inflammation, there's actually clinical evidence that GLA reduces inflammation, um so so inflammation again as i mentioned is this kind of very complex process and it's always happening in our body and it's and in reality the most inflammatory thing you can do is eat and exercise um because every time you're eating You have to take larger molecules, those macromolecules, proteins, fats, carbohydrates, and you have to break them down through a catabolic process so that you can actually extract the energy in the context of ATP. But on food labels, we use calories. And every time you do that, you're breaking these bonds apart. And this generates these markers of inflammation. Sometimes people say react oxygen species or causes oxidative stress. This is literally always happening and it's essential. If we weren't able to do this, we would not be alive. Um, And and so literally everything you eat causes inflammation because you're creating these byproducts. the good news is, is that our body's really good at regulating all of this. So, you know, we don't have to worry too much about that when we eat something because our body is going to maintain this balance or this homeostasis. Um, and inflammation happens for a reason, right? It's our body's immune response to some sort of stimulus. So that could be an infection. Um, it could be a pathogen, a microorganism that our body's trying to to sound the alarm about and recruit cells of the immune system to help kill it. It could be a physical wound. So that could be an actual like cut on your skin that your body has to um, stimulate wound healing to regenerate skin cells. But it could be like micro tears in your muscles after a hard workout and you have to get good rest so your immune system can initiate that wound healing process as well. Um, But you also do it during digestion. Um, And this is, again, tightly regulated and you don't want too much or too little of either side, anti-inflammatory or or pro-inflammatory. So anyway, this linoleic acid topic is really kind of where this all started. So linoleic acid goes to this gamma linoleic acid, which, again, there's evidence that... um, it reduces inflammation, but then subsequently 0.2% of that is converted to this uh, arachidonic acid. So, so we need linoleic acid for survival. It's considered an essential fatty acid. We can't make it. Um, and we need it for our ourselves. Like it literally makes up a component of our cell membranes. Um, and so if we weren't consuming it, we would have some issues with our physiology. So when you actually look at the scientific evidence about seed oils, um, so seed oils are a major source of this linoleic acid. You can also get it from eating actual nuts and seeds. It's also found in certain meats and in eggs. Um, and there's a lot of clinical evidence that actually demonstrates it has an anti-inflammatory or protective effect. So if you look at um, you know, several meta-analyses uh, over the last several years, they found that both linoleic acid and arachidonic acid, which was the byproduct, Um, don't increase risk for any sort of cardiovascular disease. And when they looked at blood biomarkers, people with higher levels of linoleic acid in their blood compared to um, lower levels were 7% less likely to develop cardiovascular disease. So, you know, when you look at the actual clinical evidence, there's actually no data, no credible data that seed oils or or the fatty acids compare you know, that seed oils are composed of are actually implicated in any sort of inflammatory or chronic disease processes. Um, and again, there's there's many other studies. I won't kind of rehash them all. But, um, you know, even the American Heart Association concluded that um linoleic and arachidonic acids are actually associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And um, and that linoleic acid is actually associated with be- better physical condition in um, older adults, particularly those over 70 years old. So, you know, kind of the big overview is that there's there's a lot of really unfounded demonization of seed oils when in reality we know that um this kind of broad mediterranean diet which is uh unsaturated oils like your seed oils, lean proteins, high in fiber and produce is really kind of the the best catch-all diet for the vast majority of individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I know, like when I started actually exploring like the other side of the topic, <laughs> uh, eventually, like I found like a lot of the stuff you mentioned, which is just a lot of the things that are used to incriminate seed oils are just mechanistic related stuff. So, for the listeners, can we talk a little about me- mechanistic stuff? Because I think it's like one thing. It's it's interesting to see a mechanism, but I feel like if you it's more interesting to find a mechanism after you've already found a pathway with something versus just speculating with a mechanism. Which uh, you you maybe know the numbers. Like, what are the what are the odds of some like if some mechanism that we discover actually playing out in the human body the way that we think it will based on that mechanism?
1: Oh my. Gosh, the uh, pff, I mean, less than point one percent, I would say. Um, and and the reason for that is be is our body is super mm-hmm. complex. So so basically, a mecan- a mechanism is is looking at you know a, a biological pathway where you have different molecular partners and you're saying, OK, well, this chemical binds to this receptor, which activates this protein, which then turns on this transcription factor, which then activates this gene, which makes this RNA, which makes this protein and so on and so forth. And and so mechanism is looking at kind of the inner workings of a biological process in the context of at the molecular level Um But I think it's really I think a lot of people don't realize that these are all kind of happening simultaneously. And a lot of these molecules that are signals or, um, you know, um, um, you know, participate in these signaling pathways participate in multiple signaling pathways and they can activate them they can inhibit them they can be they they can might require a partner or a cofactor they might be only turned on in certain t- cell types or tissue types or organ types or species and so you know you can't simply look at a mechanistic study which are typically done in a petri dish with cells that are all identical to each other and And um, or an animal model that's not a human and say, okay, well, we blasted them with arachidonic acid artificially. We took some, you know, in solution with none of the other molecular components and none of the physical food source. um, And we saw this impact because that's not how it happens in an organism and certainly not in a human because digestion and metabolism and how all these different systems play with each other is so much more complex than that. And so, you know, we humans, people fall into the trap of of exaggerating or mischaracterizing the findings of a mechanistic study or an an in vivo study or an in vitro study, and certainly not just with nutrition, with with a lot of topics. Um, But, you know, I think it's compounded by the fact that you have these bad, bad actors online who use their credentials and they legitimately weaponize their credentials. Um, there's there's a farm a D um, James DeNicola Antonio. He um, I think he goes by something Nick on on social media. He's got millions of followers and he he um, you know, he published a paper in um in um you know he he published a review that basically was demonizing seed oils and he wrote about how harmful they are and his instagram posts are filled with um you know avoiding seed oils is what you should be doing for good health because it causes obesity and diabetes and heart disease and he says you know you shouldn't eat cereals cereal grains no seed oils um he obviously sells a lot of supplements. He owns a, a company called CardioTabs, which is a nutraceutical company. He, he he wrote a book called The Salt Fix and he he has, you know, a whole bunch of conflicts of interest um to kind of shift people away from consuming seed oils. But but it gets really hard for the average person because he again is exaggerating the mechanistic finding of a singular study and is, you know, now demonizing this this molecule that yeah, I mean if you give cells in a Petri dish, a mega dose of anything, you're probably going to do something harmful to them, um, whether it's something we consider beneficial or, or not. I mean, the, the same is true for like causing cancer in vitro. Like you can give cells in a Petri dish like 8000 fold dose of cinnamon and, and you would cause cancer, you know, in, in the mechanistic form. But that's not what happens in people
0: hmm. Yeah. And when you look at the seed oil research we have, you find that like the human outcome data suggests that they're benign or even protective in some cases. So then it's like one of those things where you go down that rabbit hole and you have this situation where you get a bunch of rat studies and mechanistic stuff thrown at you. But then you have you, you, you rebut with. But what about the human outcome data? You know, the stuff we're actually concerned with. And then. You know, it's like there's probably some pushback in terms of like, again, like we were talking about before, oh, that was based on weak epidemiological studies and things like that, where it kind of takes us back to the original topic of like, what are we trying to measure and how accurate can these measurement tools be based on the context And it seems like when you actually look at mechanistic studies and animal studies, the way that you described them, if you're going to argue that the human outcome data based on epidemiology is weak, you're probably going to also have to take the hit that your mechanistic speculation and your rat studies are also probably quite weak, if not much weaker. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. So, you know, I mean, when you look at the hierarchy of evidence, um, you know, you're you're lowest on your pyramid is uh, a case study. So that's a single entity or an expert opinion. So that's, you know, one person saying, well, I think this, therefore it is true. So that's your lowest of the low. Um, then you have in vitro and animal studies, because again, they're not in humans. So, you know, the, there are limitations to what you can conclude about those findings. They're useful to make Informed hypotheses to then expand upon or use for subsequent in vitro or in vivo studies and ultimately human research, um, but they rank below even things like observational studies or case control studies or cohort studies, which are all essentially different types of human epidemiological studies, even human survey data. Um, Obviously, the very, very top, your your kind of gold standard is your randomized controlled trials. And there are some in the context of nutrition sciences, um, but of course, those, you know, are very time consuming, um, sometimes prohibitive for people to participate in and things like that. So a lot of nutritional data is looking at these longitudinal studies um, based on epidemiological data. So they're looking at trends or patterns within populations over time, looking at health outcomes over time. Um, You could look at things like life expectancy over time. But again, all of those data, even if you considered it weaker than a randomized controlled trial is still more robust than an animal or an in vitro study.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, The other one I'll hear from time to time that I find sort of interesting when you actually dig into the details is the Minnesota Coronary Heart Study. So that one gets cited as some sort of human data that would suggest that seed oils are problematic. But if I'm not mistaken, and you probably know more about it than I do, but did that study just simply not really reach power and also have a situation where basically what they were looking to do with that study didn't actually happen, but there's some data floating around about it that it gets used sort of inappropriately?
1: Yeah. So that, so, so let me just make sure I'm, I'm remembering. So that's the one that was done in like the 60s in the nursing home. Is that? Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be five years, and I think they
1: and they replaced they replaced saturated fat with vegetable mm-hmm. oils that had linoleic. Acid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, so so basically, and that actually has been reanalyzed over the years. Um, and so they looked with um, they collected samples from. I'm actually just pulling it up really quickly. Um, They looked at um, serum cholesterol levels over time for about 2,000 individuals, um, and they looked at the um, replacement of saturated fat with linoleic acid derived primarily from corn oil or corn corn oil margarine so margarine is a essentially like whipped vegetable oil so it's solid at room temperature but it's but it's a vegetable fat it's not butter um and they the control diet was um Primarily animal fats and and so on, and they looked at their main outcome was all cause mortality. Um, they looked at relationship between serum cholesterol levels, death, and they looked at atherosclerosis, so cardiovascular disease as well as heart attacks, myocardial infarction. Um, and they and what they said was um, basically the the. The data weren't completely published. Um, and they suggest that we saw a decrease in serum cholesterol, um, but they couldn't find a relationship between that and reduction of death all-cause mortality. Now, of course, there's a lot of confounding variables here. We're looking at a very niche population. So you're looking at individuals who are hospitalized. So, so the majority of individuals were coming from mental institutions, inpatient mental institutions. You had nursing home patients. Um, but there's a lot of essential flaws with how they were actually crunching the numbers, so to speak. Um, and so they... They claim that the trials they saw a reduction in the cholesterol levels with switching to vegetable oils, um, but they didn't see a reduction in mortality. Now, when you actually look at the data 50 years later, because we know a lot more about metabolism and so on um, there's actual um, you know demonstrable limitations and actually, um, you know, uh, gaps in what they could do. Not necessarily anything that they could have controlled at the time, but simply due to the nature of the subjects that they had to work with and their understanding of nutrition and metabolism at the time um, so you actually look at you know the the findings in more detail is that you know they're not looking at other pathways they're not looking at other biomarkers they're not looking at ratios of omega three omega six they're not looking at um you know how relevant the diet they fed them was to the American diet or just diet in general. Um, So they basically created fake food to feed these people, which, again, is not relevant. So you have to also look at not just the findings. So you could say, okay, this is a randomized controlled trial. But it's not a relevant randomized controlled trial. And so it's really important to look at the study design when you're looking at the findings of a study, because the study design, if it's done poorly, that's going to skew the data you collect from it. And that's really the first point where bias can be introduced into a study. Um, In addition, this was a very, very short duration um, because essentially they were utilizing patients in these mental institutions and they actually kind of shut down several of them so like they lost three quarters of the cohort that they were actually going to be looking at um and so again they were missing a lot of information at the end so you know it's it's there have been a lot of studies since then, you know, that have demonstrated that these seed oils are not harmful, often are benign, and in many cases can be protective. And it's and it's unfortunate that people kind of cling to something that's 50 years old as evidence when it's essentially been
0: debunked
1: with better quality studies.
0: Yeah, the one that kind of goes parallel with that to some degree that I'll see is since we have the unfortunate situation of trans fats and you know, like quote unquote fake butter where that obviously that went badly. So like people will reference that as like, well, it gets into kind of the natural unnatural side of things where it's like, we'll see what happened last time we tried. And it's like, you know, at, at first glance, it's like, it can be compelling, but it can also be like, well, how many unnatural things have we tried that have worked out? in a very positive manner versus looking at this one that didn't work because for all I know like there's a thousand other unnatural things that we tried that ended up being a huge net positive and you're hyper focusing on this one mistake that got made and trying to say that the because unnatural therefore seed oil's
1: Yes, absolutely. And that is called the appeal to nature fallacy, and it is so prevalent um, everywhere. And that's essentially the insinuation that just because something is natural or derived from nature, it is somehow superior or not harmful compared to something synthetic. Um, And we see that a lot with pretty much everything i deal with you know vaccines and pharmaceutical interventions and you know even when you talk about organic versus conventional produce and and organic versus conventional pesticides and and all of that so so maybe i can kind of quickly um explain how seed oils are made um because because i think that 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 hits on a good point is that you know a lot of people say well it's not it's not the seed oils it's it's we extract them and it makes them toxic. It gives them all these toxic byproducts. So, so they basically say that um the way we extract oils from these seeds um is is causing them to become toxic. So, they they um first of all, there's a couple of different ways to extract oils um and typically we use either a um Heat based or a solvent based extraction method. So, the easiest or the most efficient way is using a process called solvent extraction. So, a solvent is a substance that dissolves something in it. And if, um, you know, it's like dissolves like, right? So, water soluble things, you could use water as a solvent. If it's a fat, Thing, you can't use water because fat and water do not get along. So we use a substance or not we, I don't know <laughs> seed oils, but um, seed oil manufacturers use a solvent called hexane, which is a chemical that helps to pull oil out of seeds. Um, it's a hydrocarbon. So it agrees with fats um, because fats are made out of um, hydrocarbon tails. Those are those fatty acid chains. Um, and people get really hung up on the the name of the chemical hexane, right? Hexane at very high concentrations, yeah, high exposures, or if you inhale it directly, can be harmful for sure. I mean, everything can be. The dose makes the poison, pens. and that's yeah. thing that I <laughs> yes, you can die from drinking too much water, one hundred percent. So it's really important to realize that. So they use this as a solvent, but then they purify it and they remove the hexane. So if you actually look at the seed oils in a finished product, there's there's a trace level, maybe. And people broadly get most of our hexane exposure when we're at the gas station pumping gas that's coming from gasoline fumes. Now, if you are someone that works in a manufacturing facility that's dealing with hexane, maybe not even related to seed oil, certainly that can pose a risk to you if you're inhaling large quantities of it. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, that's not going to be a problem when you're creating or processing or, or consuming seed oils. So, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, these, these additives, they're unstable, they're, they're turning those unsaturated fats into these trans fats. And again, there's no evidence of that. Um, and so, you know, when you're looking at that, That's that's just an unfounded claim. It's again, it's using this chemophobia and this appeal to nature fallacy to kind of spread fear about that now. Some people, um, you know, say, OK, well, it's not the processing or the creation of the fats, but it's when you're heating it for cooking. You're you're um, increasing the temperature really high. And that's going to lead to um, byproducts like hydroxides and aldehydes. And again, we're looking at mechanistic, right? You're taking these names of chemicals that are really just classes of chemicals and saying, oh, well, aldehydes create inflammation, hydroxides create inflammation. But in reality, um, You know, there's certain oils that, um, you know, can handle higher heats before that smoke point, like safflower and avocado oil and sesame oil. Um, But in a home kitchen, you're never heating them to a level that that would be a concern. And um, ideally, you shouldn't be reusing them anyway. So you wouldn't be consuming any byproducts that may or may not have been generated. Um, People that are super concerned about extraction can look with um, they can look for cold products. Pressed oils. So these are oils that are extracted without heat or chemicals um, or expeller pressed oils. So you're literally just using mechanical crushing to extract. Um, those are options. They're much more expensive. Um, and again, there's really no evidence to suggest that they're superior, um, you know, but but they're out there. Um, kind of from there, then you get into a subcategory of oils, and those are the refined oils. So basically, you take these solvent-extracted seed oils and you process them further, um, essentially where you're removing any additional particulates. Um, And this, the reason that we do refining of oils is to remove impurities, um, and it extends the shelf life of the oil. Now, you don't want oils souring, um, because that that can, you know, not be great. It might not taste good, but there can also be um, you know, it can lead to contamination. Um, and so what ends up happening is that refined oil undergoes a secondary extraction process, typically using um, heat again. So you can heat things up and extract things because you increase the solubility of it, or again, using a chemical extraction method. And um, this is giving you, again, um, um, longer shelf life, fewer particulates that are in the oils that are residuals from the seeds themselves. And it actually um, reduces the smoke point. And so refined oils are often really good for um, for, um, you know, deep frying if you needed to you know, do something at really high temperature. So again, People claim that this refining process is full of chemicals. And sure, that's true because everything is a chemical. Your body is a sack of chemicals. That's all you are. You're literally just a network of chemicals. Um, And that they're, they're contaminated with all this toxic debris from the refining process. And they're generating inflammation and free radicals. And again... They're getting they're getting kind of hung up on those the names of the solvents and the fact that the dose makes the poison and of course there's there's no scientific evidence um, and they also claim that the refining process um, you know makes the oils rancid and again there's just really not um, a lot of evidence to that um, and technically anything can be a refined oil, right? You can make a ve- you know, a fruit, vegetable oil, refined oil. It's really, it's solely about how the oil is processed or extracted initially. Um, and so, you know, in reality, there's just not a lot of weight to those claims, but it certainly sounds scary if you come across it. Yeah,
0: you sort of touched on this at the end there, and I was going to ask more specifically just about something like a deep fryer where you have these seed oils essentially just, getting heated over and over again. Uh, You know, I actually worked at a McDonald's when I was in high school and me too. so obviously
1: that's my first my first high school job i, w- I worked in uh well i actually worked um in the grocery sure. so you know i mostly spent spent my day eating
0: um <laughs> yeah. chicken nuggets and <laughs> yeah and the funny thing was that was i, well, I, I got curious about that because people were talking about the deep fryers and they're just like those oils are just sitting there for months getting heated over and over again it's like well i mean they are in there for a while but i remember changing those vats it wasn't months we would change those things fairly frequently uh but but generally speaking outside of the negative consequences you'd maybe have from just eating a diet rich in fast food mostly likely due to just the surplus in calories you're going to get from doing that should someone be concerned with a deep fryer in seed oils versus just what they're going to get on a cold pressed salad dressing
1: i mean in the broad context of things no i mean certainly you know You could, in theory, you know, overheat seed oils. You know, if you had several month old reheated seed oil like that could be theoretically not as good for you as a cold pressed seed oil on your salad. But in like real context of what people are actually consuming, that that's not going to happen, you know, Um, you know. Generally speaking, you know, fast food in moderation is kind of my mantra. You know, so if you're in, indulging in some French fries every now and then, you know, yes, I know that there's a lot of hate on fast food chains and all of that, and there's all these secret videos and they're showing the truth and all that. But in reality, like, you know, they're inspected and and you know they 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 do pretty good job of food handling and and all that, and so they are. Precognizant of making sure you know the fryers are clean and the oils are changed and filtered and all of that, um, you know. So, so I wouldn't be terribly concerned. You know, for me, it's more about looking at uh, the overall quality of your diet and ensuring that you have lots of fiber and you have good protein sources and you're getting all of your micronutrients and you know, ideally, getting those from your diet and not from supplements because we know that there's not a lot of evidence to support supplements and and you know. But I think that there's a lot of evidence that suggests that you know if you are consuming fats um you know these seed oils which are you know in the the bucket of your vegetable oils um generally are associated with uh better health outcomes than eating the majority of your fats coming from animal fats even if liver king and carnivore md want to argue with you about that
0: yeah it gets it's interesting i mean i think Really, like after kind of exploring this topic more, the only the only reasonable explanation I heard to avoid seed oils in any like meaningful way was just the due to their connection with ultra processed foods where it's like, I guess if someone's going to use that as a heuristic where I'm going to avoid seed oils. Because they're bad for whatever reason, they're likely going to avoid a bunch of ultra processed foods because most of those are going to be refined sugars and seed oils or some sort of thing like that, and then but then you just get to the point of like why don't you just say I'm going to avoid ultra processed foods or limit them to a degree where I'm like meeting my my dietary needs but not exceeding them, and then look at it through that lens, but I mean I guess people people like to gamify stuff so <laughs> if they can do it one way you are
1: you're you're so right and and actually you know i love that topic we actually did a couple of posts on ultra processed food over at on science recently um because there's not there's no formal definition Mm -hmm. of what an ultra processed food is versus a a processed food and technically everything we consume is processed to some degree even Mm -hmm. produce even frozen vegetables processing is not inherently bad um but colloquially, when we think of ultra process, we're thinking of things that have added fats and added sugars and added salts and things like that um and and yeah, if you look at the proportion, like if you're looking at potato chips, like you know yes, they're fried in oil, right you know most often because it's cheaper than animal fats and it makes it more accessible um and and you know, but it's not the oil itself, right it's the proportion of your diet that is being you know, made up of foods that have low nutrient mm-hmm. density, right? So they might be high in calories, but they don't have a lot of vitamins and minerals or they're high in fat, but they don't have good proteins or carbohydrates. And so it's not about the single ingredient, right? So why are we vilifying a single ingredient when instead we should be focusing again on these healthy patterns? And it's also, like they don't They're not mutually exclusive, right? You can have a really healthy, balanced, diverse diet and you can go have ice cream or have a bag of chips or have some cookies like, you know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. But again, it becomes this all or nothing phenomenon where it's like, well, we're going to take our pitchforks out and go after linoleic acid when in reality it has nothing mm -hmm. to do
0: with. Yeah, I just like I find sanity by just looking at all these things as tools where it's like, you know, like am I going to sit down and eat a bag of potato chips on a regular basis? Probably not. But like, if I'm going, if I, if I need something that is going to be high calorie, low volume, that's a reasonable tool. In my example, so is like, if I go through an aid station in ultra marathon, it's like, yeah, I want the potato chip. I don't want to dip the potato in the oil and then the salt. I just want the potato chip. <laughs> so, like that's like, that's obviously an extreme example, but I mean, it, it just goes to show you like, the, the other thing, too, of just like food combinations in general, because I mean, people are to some degree probably need to be mindful of the level of ultra processing that they're including if they have a if, if they have a low output lifestyle to the degree where the way I look at it is like even if I took a baked potato and sliced it and dipped it in oil and then dipped it in salt, and ate that I would tap out with that that scenario way before I did the bag of potato chips. And that's likely something to do with the fiber contents or or the maybe the water. Moisture, moisture. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah abs- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's you know, it all goes into that nutrient mm-hmm. density. Right. So if you know you're consuming, you know, a thousand calories and it and it only weighs six ounces versus a thousand calories and it weighs several pounds like you're going to be consuming less food less calories right and and you know and that's why you know things that have a lot of fiber have a lot of moisture in them um you know they they give you that sensation of fullness which is a whole other beef i have with the carnivore diet because it's devoid of fiber and fiber is super important for all these appetite regulation cues on top of ensuring that you don't develop all sorts of digestive issues. Um, But yeah, it's about it's about the density and the quality of of the food itself, less about the individual substances or chemicals or um, ingredients within the
0: food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another another topic, if we want to kind of transition loosely, I guess, because seed oils likely, quote unquote, cause this is leaky gut. (laughs)
1: Oh, goodness. Yes. Leaky gut is one of these diagnoses du jour um, that um, I'm just going to, you know, uh, it'll be controversial, but it's not a medical condition. Now, leaky gut in the context of physiology is a term that colloquially is used for um Intestinal cell permeability. Now, what happens with a lot of these pseudoscience diagnoses, um, leaky gut, adrenal fatigue, a lot of these other ones is, you know, people who want to promote it take a term that does have some sort of scientifically related definition, and then they kind of manipulated and co-opt it. Um, So leaky gut basically suggests that your gastrointestinal tract is leaky, literally holes are forming and bacteria and toxins, toxins are always involved in all of these things. You know, the seed oils are toxic and the toxins are leaking in and the brain tox. Anyway, so these things leak through your intestinal wall and get into your bloodstream. Um, It's very popular among your your naturopaths and your alternative practitioners. And they say that it causes all sorts of symptoms from bloating and gas and constipation and diarrhea to food sensitivities, which are not a thing either. Um, I'm I would love to talk about that too. Um, I have many times, um, but it also uh, suppresses your immune system. It causes brain fog and memory loss and fatigue and skin issues and ADhD and depression and anxiety and autoimmune disorders and sugar cravings and also and also autism I saw recently so um so yeah, so this is not a thing, but basically when you digest food when it gets into your g i tract you 've got four thousand square feet of surface area in your different systems first food enters the stomach uh your stomach acid and various enzymes start to break it down it moves into the small intestine um and then you have more enzymes the walls of the small intestine are absorbing water and nutrients um through channels proteins things like that that transport those nutrients into the bloodstream um and then you have the transport of those that that partially digested food, um, about eight hours later, go into um, the large intestine, your colon, right? Um, And it's going to hang out there for like a day, day and a half, sometimes two days, and uh, it's turning the the food waste, the indigestible stuff into a stool, uh, absorbing lots more water and, and all of that. Simultaneously, you have your gut microbiome, trillions and trillions of, of microorganisms that are actually helping us digest the food and extract nutrients, and it's also feeding them so they can survive. Um, and those microorganisms are really important for a lot of things. They're also... Um, Used as kind of a weapon, where people make fake claims about the microbiome when we don't fully understand the scope of it. But that's a whole other topic. Um, but basically, you've got these layers of your intestine. You've got the mucosa layer. You've got the submucosa. You've got the muscular layer, and you've got the adventitia. And so the mucosa is kind of the interface between your intestine and the food. And it and these are epithelial cells, skin cells that secrete mucus, which protects um, protects the cells. And the mucosa is absorbing nutrients, and it helps transport nutrients, and it also protects... The barriers from being broken, and those those microorganisms from getting in and, and causing infection, um, but it's not it 's like convoluted right it 's got these finger like projections and it 's got all the surface area uh, it 's kind of like a roller coaster, and you have a whole bunch of stuff going on in there, and you have all these cells that are touching each other, but they're they're dynamic right they 're moving around and they 're opening little ports to transport nutrients in so so technically. Yeah, your gut is leaky because you have to move things in and out. You got to move molecules of water in. You got to move nutrients out. You got to move cells around. You know, everything's kind of dynamic. So they take this concept of the fact that your intestine is dynamic because it's 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 really complex. And then they say that those junctions between the cells are are just they're loose and there's gaps and there's cracks and there's holes. And then all these undigested food particles are just seeping in there. Um, yeah, that, that wouldn't happen because if that happened, you would develop a blood infection and it would lead to sepsis and 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 you would be at risk of dying. So, again, you know, this is not a medical condition. There are gastrointestinal disorders that are um, that have issues with dis- perturbing the cells or leading to inflammatory processes, like celiac disease and Crohn's disease. Um, but the general population is not experiencing leaky gut syndrome and causing all of these very generic, non-specific symptoms. Uh, And the problem is, is that there's all these fraudulent tests that people use to diagnose leaky gut, like the Manitol or lactulose urine test. And these are not reliable. Um, But unfortunately, you know, they've been popularized um, and 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 they're used as kind of credibility for this, um, you know, this diagnosis. And so, of course, um, the treatments Usually involve very restrictive and fad diets because you have to cure the the leaks in your gut. Um, there's a lot of supplements that are recommended, um, and and I just want to reiterate that there's no medical or scientific basis for them. Um, and supplements are again are not regulated, and many could actually be harmful for you. Um, but yeah, so it's it's kind of the the same old story where a a, a legitimate scientific phenomenon in the in the context of how cells are dynamic and function has kind of been manipulated to suggest that you have these like huge crevices in your intestinal tract that's leaking things out into your bloodstream and causing all of these, you know, really nonspecific symptoms.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing you mentioned that I want to follow up on is just like a food sensitivity or lack thereof, perhaps. What is going on when people like minus someone with actual celiac disease or Crohn's disease where, you know, you, you actually know what's happening with that particular individual. Like you said, that's not a population level problem. That's an individual problem. <laughs> if if I go or like I think most people I talk to, myself included, there are certain foods where if I eat them, I get a stomach ache from them. Is that just something that's sure? just everyone's going to ha- have uh, some foods that just don't jive well for them for whatever reason? We don't really know. Is that potentially, I know the microbiome thing is very early still, and we don't really have definitive answers with that either. Could it be something where it's like you need to introduce that food in gradual amounts and try to build up a tolerance to it? Or what's kind of going on in those situations, in your opinion?
1: yeah that, that's a great question so so when it comes to like food's not agreeing with people there's there's really two main buckets there's food allergies and there's food intolerances so um food allergies are an an immune system mediated process where' essentially a substance in that food is recognized by our immune system as a foreign invader and our immune system, specifically uh, the mast cell arm launches this really, really rapid um, inflammatory process mediated by the secretion of uh, particular types of antibodies called IgE and histamine. And it creates this and it can lead to this anaphylaxis um, reaction. So food allergies i think a lot of people think of in the context of peanut allergies um celiac is actually a wheat allergy so it's a it's an allergic reaction against a protein found in wheat um and um and then and so those are a very specific um 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 eh, (laughs) sorry um reactions against specific molecules that's mediated by your immune system. And so gluten is often vilified in the context of celiac disease. And a lot of people are like, well, I have a gluten sensitivity. Um, And that's become very popular. Right. So if you don't have celiac, which is the 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 illness for the allergy against the protein found in wheat and barley and rye, which is gluten, um, you know, there's not evidence that that there's some kind of Uh, nebulous gluten sensitivity. So if you don't have celiac or a wheat allergy, um, you don't need to be avoiding gluten. Um, The other side of the arm would be intolerances. And so intolerances are not related to the immune system, but are rather related to digestion. And so I like to use lactose intolerance as an example. So lactose intolerance is essentially your body does not make the enzyme required to digest that particular sugar. So lactose is a sugar that's found in dairy products. And we produce an enzyme called lactase. Um, So if it ends in ASE, it's an enzyme, it breaks things down. Um, So people who don't make that enzyme or don't make enough of that enzyme might struggle to digest the sugars found in dairy products that contain lactose or, or products that contain lactose broadly. And as a result, they might have gastrointestinal symptoms. So bloating and cramping and diarrhea and things like that. So two different kind of biological processes, but related to reactions to things you eat. So it's possible that people may have intolerances for things that they eat and that's why they get a stomach upset or things like that. It's also possible that they're getting stomach upset because you're feeding a certain population of microorganisms and they're creating a lot of gas as a result because when they metabolize, they're producing gas and that gas is going into your digestive tract and it either is going up or it's going down. Um, And so that could be something too. But what happens again, and and there's a lot of other things that can cause stomach issues, right? There's a ton ton of nerves that innervate your GI tract we know anxiety and stress and all sorts of other things can play a role in that too um so it's really hard to tease it out so what has happened is that there's these companies um one in particular called everly well which is kind of the biggest perpetrator of this they sell these sensitivity tests where basically they you you um Do like a a skin prick and you give a blood sample and they look for all these things that you're, you know, in food that you're supposedly sensitive to. What they're testing for is an antibody called IgG and IgG antibodies are produced anytime you encounter anything. So your body, your immune system produces IgG against pretty much everything in your life. It does not indicate you're sensitive to anything. It's actually an antibody that's produced as tolerance, meaning, hey, I saw it. It's not foreign. I just have those antibodies. So I know that next time I encounter it, I don't need to sound the alarm. And levels quite often can correlate with how recently you were exposed to it. So if you test positive for eggs on a food sensitivity test, it does not mean that you were sensitive to eggs. It means you. Eight eggs recently probably. Um, but the problem is is that that then leads to misinformation, disordered eating, restrictive diets, because these people, it's this card, right? And it gives you like 20 different things that you're sensitive to. And all these people are like, Oh my gosh, I need to eliminate all of these things from my diet. And and it becomes psychological and it becomes, um, you know, part of this identity and it and it also runs the risk of malnourishment because now you're avoiding these entire food groups when there's actually no science behind it. So, you know, generally speaking, if you eat something and it makes your stomach upset, don't eat it. Right. If you're legitimately concerned that you may have a true digestive issue like an intolerance, see a gastroenterologist or if you're concerned that you might have an allergy See an immunologist, but don't do an at-home consumer test for food sensitivity because that's not founded on reality. Yeah,
0: no, those. Yeah, I, re- I remember like when those first started getting popular. I heard some people talking about, it, and they were just like, "Well, I took the test and I got these results, and it was like, there's a bunch of foods on here that I eat all the time and feel great with, and a bunch that I, they said I should be eating when I do eat them, they give me a stomach ache." I was, yeah, <laughs> so it's kind of like a coin flip as yeah, so of whether good- it do something. Reasonable or not?
1: Yeah, and and you know, aside from the fact that IgG is not an indication of whether or not you know you you sensitivity is not a medical term to begin with, but but anyway, IgG antibodies don't indicate anything. Um, These are consumer tests, right? They're they're a commercial company. There's no lab validation. There's no standardization, like who knows what they're actually mm-hmm. reporting, right? Um, and and again, it's predatory. And, and I think it just, it just does harm to people's health, but also just like literacy, scientific literacy
0: in general. Is there anything of value in terms of putting yourself in a position where the foods you are eating can make it less likely? You're going to have digestive issues. I'm thinking like fermented vegetables, fermented dairy for that matter. Are those things where like, For example, if I'm eating fermented dairy or just yogurts, perhaps kefir, is that going to potentially put me in a position where I'd be better able to also use just commercial dairy along the side of it?
1: So there's not an answer to that. Um, You know, I mean, we know a lot of those foods are healthy. They're rich in nutrients. Um, You know, I love yogurt. I love cottage cheese. I love kimchi, I'll eat anything pickled yeah. any day of the week, um, you know, and, and we know that there is not a lot of evidence that probiotic supplements are beneficial to people because of a lot of reasons, um, because they typically don't contain the diverse species that live in your gut. They're often not the right species. They're tiny little dosage compared to the millions and trillions, trillions of bacteria that are in there, um, you know, but getting some of these live microorganisms for your food. It's it's we don't know enough to say that for a certain cohort of people, it's going to be beneficial or it's going to there's no evidence to suggest it's harmful. There's no evidence to suggest that it's going to prevent an illness or prevent digestive issues or things like that. So, you know, again, if they're nutritious and you enjoy them, eat them. Right. You know, um, but we the microbiome is too complex and difficult to study in a comprehensive way for us to say that, okay, well, if you eat some kefir along with unfermented dairy, you're less likely to have issues with digesting lactose it just it's just not there yet, and it's gonna vary
0: per sure so yeah you're it's yeah, you're just throwing darts in the dark at that point and Maybe you get if there's something there. Maybe you get lucky, but it's it's not going to be something transferable from you to your friend if they're having similar situations.
1: Exactly, but that's you know, and that's and that's um, you know, the the at home microbiome tests are getting really popular too. And I know I covered like 800 different topics but but those are like the wild west right because you're because again you're not sampling the whole microbiome you're only get you're only sampling what actually comes out in stool and that's not necessarily representative of everything that's living there and the tests use different technologies use different methods they're only detecting certain species and so even with those like if you're curious that's But you can't use it to make any sort of determination or uh, use it to inform changes in your behavior and your diet, because I think people also forget that those things, those bacteria, they're dynamic, they're alive. Right. So they're going to respond and react to whatever you put in there. and, And some species might digest certain things better and so you might see those numbers go up and other ones go down and then if you eat something different the reverse might be true doesn't mean one way is bad or good it just means that they're dynamic and they're responding to the food you're giving them right um but people are trying to like use that to hack their health and make inferences about oh well you know artificial sweeteners are bad because you know this study showed that if people drank sodas with aspartame, you know, the microbiome populations change. And when they, you know, drink glucose, they, you know, change differently. And it's like, yeah, well, I mean, all you can say about that is that they change. You you don't know. There's no there's no one's good, one's bad. It's just that is what they are. And again, we don't know enough about what those things mean to say one thing or the other. Um. So it's you know, it's it's um, people fall into the trap of like, you know, Having too much information at their disposal and using it to make conclusions that are just not support.
0: Yeah, yeah. The aspartame one's another interesting one because that's another like dosage. Like anything, dosage makes the poison, and the dosage for aspartame seems to be quite high relative to what you'd actually be able to oh, consume.
1: I've got my uh, my diet ginger ale <laughs> here right now. I have at least one diet soda a day, um, but yeah, I mean aspartame. When you eat it, it it literally is broken down into to amino acids, um, and you use those amino acids to make proteins in your body. And, um, there's no, there's not even mechanistic evidence of how it would be harmful. Um, you know, and there's no human evidence that it would be harmful, especially at the levels that we would ever be exposed to. So, um, yeah, it's, um, unfortunately a lot of a lot of a lot of it is based i think on you know chemophobia or fear of chemicals or words that people don't understand and 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 clever marketing.
0: Mm-hmm. I think. yeah 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 there's a market share and everyone wants to get a piece of it so that means pushing someone out and eventually diet sodas needed to get pushed out i guess <laughs> at least part of them anyway yeah i mean this has been fun andrea just talking about some of these topics and kind of how to look at it i think Yeah. Generally speaking, I just think like if I had to give someone advice, I'd be like, look at any of these, these inputs that you have available to yourself as tools and then ask yourself, what, what are you trying to do with this situation? So like, if it's someone like myself who has an incredibly high energy demand, you know, there's gonna be tools I'm going to use at a frequent basis that maybe I wouldn't if I were more sedentary, uh, and it's just like looking at the context and whether the tool is going to be useful or not and kind of moving moving and constructing things from there from there is is a much better way to view these things than this is inherently good or inherently bad and looking at things in a real black and white way
1: Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, something that I really try to emphasize to people is that, you know, health really broadly is multifactorial and there are some things you can control and there are some things you cannot control. Um, But it's never gonna be these like quick fixes or this all or nothing or one thing is toxic and one thing is you know a panacea um you know and if you see someone claiming something like that that should give you pause because it's a lot more nuanced than that and um you know especially when it comes to nutrition and health and and all that it's it's Um, much more kind of unique on a person by person basis. And there's a lot of factors at play, Um, you know, and and and, you know, just, you know, everything in moderation when it comes to kind of food sources, you know, there's there's again, nothing inherently bad, nothing inherently good. Natural is not inherently better. Synthetic is not inherently evil, you know. So those sorts of claims, if you see them online, should always just take a beat and just think,
0: think. Yeah. Ask what are they trying? What message are they trying to purvey?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, Andrea, before I let you go, I do want to let you kind of share where people can find you. I know you, you co-host Unbiased Science and you have the most clever titles to your episodes, by the way. <laughs> it's, wor- it's worth going and just look at the titles, if nothing else, even if you're not going to listen to the episodes. My God. So,
1: they are that is the hardest part oh, like is coming yeah. up with something yeah. clever. It's like weeks of am brainstorming. But um but yeah, Zach, thank, thanks so much. So um so yeah, you can find the podcast. It's at Unbiased SciPod um on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. LinkedIn threads. Um, we also have a website. It's www.unbiasedsipod. Um, I'm also, I'll shamelessly plug, I'm the executive director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation, um, where my team is uh, scientists and clinicians that try to dispel myths and misconceptions about tick-borne
0: illness. Oh, I'm to have you back to talk about Lyme's disease now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, that's what i did my really? doctor okay
0: doctor interesting doctor
1: so yeah yeah um so yeah so so um we have a website it's uh, www.aldf.com and i'm currently working on a big overhaul we are on instagram now it's at american lyme disease foundation it's um it's it's in its infancy but um but-
0: awesome well i'll link all that stuff in the show notes and the listeners can go and check it out yeah, but thanks a bunch for for your time and all the information thanks for having Absolutely. me we'll have to do it, it again All right, everyone, if you're still here, you're sticking around to hear about how I use the show sponsor Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. For Element, they make an electrolyte supplement. So what I know about me is that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid loss. So what that means is if I go out for a run and I lose two liters of sweat, then I'm also going to lose roughly... 1,228 milligrams of electrolytes with it, which ironically happens to be about one packet of element. So what I likely will do is if I'm going out for a longer training session or I'm going to be out in the heat and sweating a lot, I'm going to supplement the fluid intake I have with electrolyte to make sure i have that stuff in balance the way this usually looks for me is i'll wake up in the morning and i'll have a cup of coffee and i'll put half of one of those packets in with my coffee it will be one of their chocolate flavors though because it's coffee after all i'm not going to stick one of the fruity flavors in there So that gets me kicked off. Then what happens is I go out for the workout and then I am drinking basically to thirst, but I am also targeting some numbers at times when it's hot enough and I know what my sweat loss is. But generally speaking, for every liter of fluid I'm taking in, I'm matching that with 614 milligrams of electrolytes to make sure I'm staying on top of that and remaining hydrated throughout that training session. If you're interested in a deep dive and figuring out more about your fluid loss and electrolyte needs, I actually have a couple podcast episodes that might be interesting to you. One is episode 358 with Andy Blow, where I go over all things hydration. And he talks about how I came up with that 614 milligram loss number and how you can maybe find out about yours as well as how much fluid you are losing with some simple at-home tests. Also, I did an episode a while back, episode 300 which is just titled Personalizing Workout Hydration. So check out both of those if you're interested in doing a deep dive into your hydration and electrolyte needs. Something new I added to my training and racing this year are exogenous ketones. The research for exogenous ketones is still in its early stages, but there is a lot coming out and it is getting more convincing in my opinion to the degree where I wanted to try it out. I actually stress tested it During a 15-hour, 100-mile run at the Rocky Raccoon 100 earlier this year as a way to confirm whether it was something I was going to include in my racing protocol, one thing I was a little nervous about with exogenous ketones, like I am with anything I'm ingesting during an ultramarathon, is what is it going to do to digestion i was interested in the recovery research for some time now with exogenous ketones and there are some newer research studies now that suggest it could also have some performance applications as well if you're able to tolerate it and get it in the right dose so when i decided to try it out i went with delta g ketones because they are the ketone ester that basically all the research that has promising effects is tied to and it's their formula that's being used in those research studies so a lot of times you'll just go and look for an exogenous ketone and there's all sorts of potential issues with that whether it's a dosage or just the incorrect type and it's not actually going to do what the research suggests it would do so to me it was looking at if i want to potentially get the benefits that these could be bringing i need to be using the one that they're actually showing the research with so that was delta g ketones they actually received the DARPA funding and grant to actually put together that form. Like I said in the, the intro message, they have 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with this right now, and this is something where I am evolving as I kind of do more with it, but at the moment, I'll do a bottle of their ketone performance, Delta G performance, and that is their little blue bottle. So I'll take one of those about 20 minutes before a big key training session, and that's it. If it's a race day though, I'll do that same protocol, but I will take another bottle about every three hours after that. So if I'm doing something that's longer duration, like that 15 hour Rocky Raccoon effort I've just described, I would be doing that again at three, six, nine, and 12 during that particular performance. So like I said in the intro, if you want to chat with one of their experts, you can actually go to DeltaGKetones.com and they have a consultation service there right now where they will help you understand the research and whether your lifestyle is even something that they would be worth considering it for. So if you want to get a little more information on that, that option is available to you. Links to both Delta G ketones and Element Electrolytes can be found in the show notes as well as at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter.